Hey, we are the United States of America, but lately we've been called the divided states of America. You know, what is it that really holds us together? What is the unifying bond that makes us all identify commonly as Americans? You know, at the uh, founding of this nation, we were a bunch of separate colonies, all with different beliefs, religious beliefs, uh, and, and different charters for even why we were in existence. Uh, but God sent a move. God sent a messenger by the name of George Whitfield, who uh, had a message of being born again, uh, that you absolutely united the colonies in a way where an identity emerged that had never been in the hearts of the people before. They identified as Americans, uh, no matter what background you came from. Uh, it was the gospel that was the great leveler and the great unifier uh, that brought America together like never before. And God used a humble servant, a remarkable man who was anointed of the Holy Spirit uh, to preach up and down uh, the coast of America at the time uh, to literally tens of thousands of people. And it was a first great awakening that God birthed. You know, I believe America needs a third great awakening. We need a fresh move of God. We need to regain our identity as Americans if we are to save uh, this wonderful republic that we've been given. So you don't want to miss this podcast today. We're going to unpack a lot of these ideas as we look into the amazing legacy of George Whitfield. Hey, welcome to the Ron Johnson Discipleship Podcast. We're so excited to be with you today, and I'm especially excited as we're uh, continuing to work our way through a great book. In fact, what, Andrew, why don't you uh, remind people of, our, of yeah. where we're at right now? Yeah, with this new book we're doing called "If You Can Keep It" by Eric Metaxas. And for those who are, you know, his history buffs, you understand that yes. phrase. If you can are keep it. Are you a history a, buff? Uh, I wouldn't consider myself a buff, but I would like to get there one yeah. day. Well, yeah, yeah, we have to define buffness. Yeah, but uh, but I do I do enjoy history. Yeah, and, and there's so much to history. You need to be like, well, Chinese history, American history, you know, all these different right. types of history. So I wouldn't consider myself a buff. Though. Okay. Yeah, okay. but but. Um, but I have heard this phrase before, if you can keep it, yeah. um, Benjamin Franklin in his uh, basically admonition to a, a woman as, as they finished the Constitution and walked out. And, and there was a lady who asked him, he's like, what kind of government did you give us? Right, right. He says, a republic, if you can keep it. Yes. It's a very profound statement. Yes, today. if you can keep it. And so that's really been Metaxas's approach in this book is... Uh, he says the forgotten promise of American liberty. What, in other words, he's trying to address th the answer to that question. If you can keep it, well, what is what is necessary right. for us to sustain the freedom that we've been given? Right, and I really like how he framed that. The founding fathers, when they came up with the Constitution and and, and the government of the United States, it, it was a precarious experiment. It wasn't like, yeah. oh yeah, this would, this will be great. It was it like never been attempted before. Never been attempted. It's precarious. It's fragile because they understand. He, to, to they have such a high view of liberty, yeah. which we take for granted today. Yeah. But their high view of liberty, they realize that man to preserve it. They just fought through war. They had, they see their brothers and sisters and friends and colleagues died in this war for liberty. So yeah. that was precious to them. And they say, how can we construct this beautiful sense of checks and balance to to, yeah. to preserve our liberty? Well, they they yeah. uh, they were sophisticated, unlike us today. You know, everything today is in the soundbite. You know, so we talk about freedom. You know, we have all these little slogans, right. and the problem with slogans is they're overly simplistic, right? 
And uh, so even a, even a, a word like liberty or freedom is so perverted and shallow today. And usually it's based on feelings and flesh and selfishness and narcissism. Our founders studied history. They studied dem- Democrat uh, democracies and they studied republics and they studied monarchies and they studied every form of government and realized that uh, it is a finely tuned you know, uh, machine, so to speak, to understand liberty, the, the strengths of liberty, the weaknesses of liberty, and how you keep all the human nature and everything in perfect balance to sustain something as fragile as liberty, whereas we, again, we sloganize it today. So I appreciate that. And, and this book is designed to maybe help us go a little bit deeper. Like last, you know, last podcast, we talked about the golden triangle of, of freedom. Uh, Oz Guinness uh, <laughs> highlighted that. And, uh, and just to help us understand the, the requirements, you know, of liberty. And so today we're going to get into some interesting background because it is uh, Metaxas's belief and the belief of many other great historians that if there had not been somebody by the name of George Whitfield and the second great or first great awakening uh, in America, we would not have been set up for this experiment in liberty in the first place. In other words, this was a precursor to even the Constitutional Convention. Yep. And, and just a review of the Golden Triangle, and basically it says for us to have liberty, we must have virtue. Okay, virtue supports liberty. In other words, self-government. It means we have yeah. liberty We have liberty because we trust our people not to go steal and kill, and right. behind closed doors they're doing so what is right. people have virtue on the inside. On the they, inside, they, yes. So they can right. govern themselves. Right, and if you don't have virtue, you need big government. But if you have virtue, then you don't need as much government. Right. But what right. supports virtue is religion or faith, right? And today, so faith is the sustaining power that keeps virtue uh, to say, hey, you are washed, that there is, you're accountable to someone, right? Right. But then what keeps faith, what allows faith to thrive is liberty. Right. Hence the triangle, right? Right. So in other words, uh, you don't have to, your faith doesn't have to look exactly like my faith and faith can't be coerced. These are some foundational principles. Right. Conscious, so right, right. People, free people have to embrace their faith and embrace the Lord willingly, freely. It can't be out of compulsion. Right. Like we see in so many nations where uh, religion is forced upon people. So uh, so again, that golden triangle is a, a beautiful understanding that, that as we shared last week was commonplace among our founding fathers. Nobody would have disagreed with that, whereas today, each of those points could be argued. Yeah, and each of those things have their own definition. But 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 today we're talking about George Whitfield. George Whitfield came to kind of force that first angle of that triangle is the first side of the triangle, which is faith or religion, right? And and, and basically talking about how foundational his impact was well on, well, it was on the colonies in America, which then instilled virtue. And then which led to liberty and so forth. Yep. So that was yep. so this is like the precursor of faith here. So we're gonna do a little bit of a deep dive in the time that we have today in this this amazing character uh, of George Whitfield. Uh, he was born in 1714 uh, to Thomas and Elizabeth Whitfield, and I love this. He was the seventh child. All right, he was the the uh, caboose. I always remind my children, who are uh, the, the last ones of a uh, large family, be grateful that you're here because <laughs> you know if we had a smaller family, you wouldn't be here. I'm amazed again at Whitfield. Same mm-hmm. thing with Wesley. Um, they were at the end of the litter, so to speak. Uh, his family was not a healthy family. Um, uh, his, his father died when he was just two. His mother remarried into tragic unhappiness and turmoil and eventually another divorce. So, you know, he did not come from a wealthy family. Um, he was a, a, a commoner, so to speak. Uh, he got into Oxford, which was the ultimate 
Ivy League. Like what we would consider Ivy League, the the top university of the his original day. Ivy League. Yeah, yeah. There was no Ivy League, but that was the top <clears throat> educational experience in his day. And he got in not because of his money or his influences or his social connections, but he got in because uh, he worked at his his family's inn. And where he would clean the inn, and and uh, and so in those days, if you went and you were someone who cleaned for the people who had money and social status, then they would let you in on that ground. But you were kind of a second-class citizen, so to speak. So that's how that's how Whitfield got into uh, Oxford. And interesting enough, at Oxford, uh, he met the Wesley brothers. Yeah. And uh, a lot of you, if you know anything about the Wesleys, they they had something called the Holy Club, which was dedicated to, you know, it was really kind of a um, an attempt to be separate, to be holy, to live a righteous life. Uh, in hindsight now, I think Wesley and Whitfield would both say it maybe wasn't the best way. It was it was a lot of uh, works and uh, holiness-based. Zealotry. Yeah, and, and asceticism. I mean, you yeah. know, like, uh, you know, even Whitfield went through his season where he kind of withdrew from people, kind of became a hermit. Right. You know, uh, pushed away material things. I mean, uh, but it, but the the heart was good. It was a desire in an age of of carnality and compromise. It was really a desire to be different, you know, and to right. be holy. Um, and I love this historically. Uh, it was Whitfield's encounter with a book by Henry Skugel. And whenever I hear, <laughs> whenever I hear like the the greats talk about certain books that changed their lives, I try to track it down. So I actually tracked this book down. It's, it's a small paperback, still in print. It's called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And basically in an age of, of dead religion or church-based or state-based religion, right, um, where churches were so dry and dead and lifeless, <clears throat> it was Henry Skugel in this book who really articulated that, that a person must have a true born again encounter with Jesus Christ that that it wasn't just going to church and checking off the boxes it was a it was a supernatural encounter in the human heart mm-hmm. with the Lord and it was that book which led George Whitfield and a host of other missionaries uh, to to have an encounters with Christ that led to incredible incredible works um, but but anyway that was where he truly came to know the Lord and after coming to know the Lord, um, that conversion experience, it launched uh, what was basically a, a lifelong experience of preaching the gospel that was, that was absolutely unparalleled. And let me also mention, when, when Whitfield was little, after this terrible family situation, he was afflicted with measles as an infant, and due to the neglect of his nurse, he suffered a permanent misfocus of his eyes. And so he had to wear glasses, and his eyes did not uh, uh, were, were slightly cross-eyed, and they uh, mockingly called him Doctor Squintum <laughs> to make fun of him. Um, and so you can see again. I mean, it wasn't that he was like a Hollywood movie star in terms of looks. Uh, he did not come from the rich upper class. He came from the poor, a lower class. Uh, his family was not a great family experience. So, so here's a guy again that the Lord chooses that comes from a, a lot of hardship and you would not expect on the who's who list of, of, of uh, you know people to go out and, and be successful Whitfield's name would probably not have been on the top of the list which again is like the Lord isn't it mm-hmm. he, he calls he calls us not because of all the great things we have to offer but he calls us based on his uh, providential uh, plans for us so let's talk a little bit about Whitfield's preaching this is amazing sober estimates are that he spoke about a thousand times every year 
for 30 years straight. That included at least 18,000 sermons and 12,000 talks or exhortations. Think about that for a minute, a thousand times a year. Yeah, um, that's about ballpark yeah. two to three times a day. <clears throat> yeah, at least. Uh, and this was interesting. Many weeks he was actually speaking, and parenthetically it says they're not preparing to speak, which he had a, a virtually no time to do. He was speaking for 60 hours uh, a week. That's almost six hours a day, seven days a week, and on the slower weeks, over eight hours a day, seven days a week on the heavier weeks. So think about that. So uh, another uh, 19th century biographer said his whole life may have been said to have been consumed in the delivery of one continuous or scarcely interrupted sermon. Um, 60 hours a week of talking. That's not preparing. I mean, I, I, you, you and I both know as preachers, pastors, Sermon prep can be a lengthy time. You know, what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? Whitfield didn't have the luxury of that. He went from sight to sight to sight um, and and stood up there and began preaching to uh, incredibly large crowds. We were talking about that. Um, there was nobody like him in America at the time to draw the kind of crowds that he was drawing. He, yeah. he would have been like a, a modern-day uh, Donald Trump in terms of just the volume of people yeah. coming, you know, uh, which is crazy, that type of popularity. Of course, his was attributed to the call of God and to the, the anointing on his life and the, the, the message that he had to preach in terms of the gospel. The other thing that's interesting is he was, um, he was not welcomed by the clergy of his day, and most revivalists are not. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't even let him come into their pulpits. Um, his, his style was different, you know, whereas Jonathan Edwards preached from notes, uh, detailed notes, uh, and almost read his message every week, which would be, you know, an hour-long discourse, and I don't know how many pages of, of, of notes. Right. Whitfield never preached from notes. <clears throat> he just got up and <clears throat> let it rip. Yeah, that's how he's able to preach that many times. You know, <laughs> this, the message was, a, was in his heart. Uh, my, I, I, I'm guessing he probably preached a similar message every single time with different flavor. That's my guess, right? It's ice cream with different flavors added in, but it's still ice cream. That's my guess, you know? Well, and he, and he certainly, I'm sure he had certain themes, but think about that even. You know, he, maybe the Lord would lay on his heart a, a message or a verse. Maybe it was something he got up and read in the morning, but then he didn't have the luxury to go into depth. Like you said, that, that came out of his heart. Uh, the preaching that came out of uh, the passion in his heart for what he was preaching. Uh, so he preached outdoors, which, which again, was totally non-conventional. It's almost viewed as irreverent in those days. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like you don't preach outside, like uh, where the animals are and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You preach in a holy place behind a pulpit. But Whitfield's pulpit was outside, and, uh, and it was in open fields, right. and people flocked to see him after he was kicked out of the church. Well, this is one of those areas of, like, you know, throughout— our podcast, we've been, we've been talking about how Christians have innovated and and used obstacles and kind of broke free from that, right? In this case, that's one of those those things that when he was kicked out of the churches, it ended up giving him a greater platform yes. because people couldn't fit into these church buildings right. he was in. So now all of a sudden, he was preaching like Jesus. There was no, it was an open field, 20,000 people who could hear him preach, you know? Yeah. So 
his opposition of being kicked out of these church buildings allows him the greater platform to which that he can. Again, I think the takeaway for us is, you know, sometimes the Lord closes doors only to open greater doors. Well, he wants us to have an idea of, of innovation, of growth. I mean, this is what I want to talk about market share is this idea of that, that God's always pushing us towards something new. And sometimes he used opposition to push us yeah. into something that so, he wants so, us so to So I got go. a great story of opposition. This, <laughs> yeah. uh, Whitfield, of course, was stoned, whipped, pelted with rotten eggs and dead animals. And yet he preached on. And the story is when he went to um, Boston, one of the clergymen there was not very excited about him being mm-hmm. in town, as, as were most of the clergy. Uh, and he greeted uh, Whitfield with these words. He says, I am sorry to see you here. And Whitfield, not missing a beat, says, so is the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, <laughs> he, he was not, he did not allow the opposition of men to stop him. Yeah. He realized that whatever opposition he was facing was demonic in nature. And I love that quote, you know, uh, the devil is sad to see me here too, because people are about ready to get rocked and saved and healed. In fact, th- these were some of the monikers that were put on him. He was called a nation changer, the awakener the fire bringer. Mm. Those are all monikers that point to the fact that God was using him to bring yeah. about great revival. He kind of he preached with deep emotion. Back back then, the, the sermons are kind of more like re, almost reading a letter, right? And, oh, yeah. And, no emotion. Yeah, and, and Whitfield is kind of like, I don't know the first guy, but, but one of the few that's actually, you know, engaging and authentic and real and that met people's emotions met them where they were you know that's you know now we're used to that type of preaching well well yeah and we almost we we value that well and i i guess people really haven't changed they want to know that what you, that you really believe in what you're saying right. and it was interesting because as you said there it said about whitfield that there was hardly a sermon he preached where there were not genuine tears now people talked about his uh, <clears throat> uh or oratory abilities, his theatrics, um, because he was, he, he was an actor early in his life. And people say, well, he just used his acting skills to draw a crowd or whatever. Uh, so he had to address that at one point. And this is not in the book, but uh, John Piper shares this story. And I thought it was really, really good just about <laughs> preaching today because people asked him, you know, um, about his, his passion in preaching. And Whitfield went on to tell this story. He, he says the Archbishop's Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1675 was acquainted with a Mr. Butterton, the actor. One day, the Archbishop said to Butterton, pray inform me, Mr. Butterton, what is the reason you actors on stage can affect your congregation with speaking of things imaginary as if they were real, while we in church speak of things real, which our congregations only receive as if they were imaginary? Why, my Lord, says Butterton, the reason is very plain. We actors on stage speak of things imaginary as if they were real, but you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, what an indictment. So here you got an actor on the stage who's, who's living a fake dream world, but, but acting as if it's totally real. And then we got preachers who are entrusted with the scriptures who stand up every week and speak of things real as if they were imaginary and he wonders why the one draws crowds and the other doesn't i think that was the key to whitfield's or one of the keys anyway to his success is when he stood in the pulpit or in the field he actually preached as if what he was saying was absolutely real 
uh, of course, it is absolutely real. It's it's the word of God. But yeah. how many pulpits are not full of that kind of earnestness and passion? Because, you know, by their own delivery, they act as if what they're saying isn't real. That was not the case with Whitfield at all. He he preached from passion. He preached through tears. He he preached in a very action animated way, and crowds thronged to see him because I think they sense wow. This guy is absolutely sincere. He's, he believes what he's preaching, which which is awesome. Um, of course, he touched a lot of people. Ben, Benjamin Franklin was not um, uh, a fan of his theology, but Benjamin Franklin said that when you listen to George, George Whitfield preach, it was like listening to an excellent piece of music. Um, of course, David Hume, the, the philosopher, who again was not a, an evangelical, traveled some 20 miles to hear uh, Whitfield preached. So there was something about his eloquence, something about his delivery, his passion, and of course the anointing of the Holy Spirit on his life that was um, amazing. One thing Ben Franklin, even though you know you go to the nuts and bolts of theology, you might disagree with Whitfield, I, I enjoy what the book said about Ben Franklin. <laughs> he says what this, the, the product of what he preached in, in, in terms of the influence he has, he made these the the men more virtuous, yes. right? They make them work harder. They're yep. more faithful. They're more patriotic. <laughs> they're more engaged. I'm like, I think that's a lesson we can learn, you know, <laughs> in our congregations, in, in the people through our sermons. Are they from a Benjamin Franklin perspective, which is kind of more of a, I mean, I wouldn't say Benjamin Franklin is non-Christian. He's more Christian than probably most people today, right? But he's not like completely, you know. He would like not a, have been an evangelical. Yeah. Right. But from his perspective, from someone outside perspective, say, hey, these people are model citizens. They contribute to society. The preaching yeah. caused them to contribute more. Well, I you, think that's powerful. You brought up something else about how God uses, uh, you know, he got he got ejected from the, the clergy. So he's out in the fields. Well, who's he preaching to? He's preaching to coal miners who are taking their lunch break. And it talks about seeing seeing the rivers of tears yeah. that are running through the coal mine dirt all over their face leaving white streaks, um, because what, what, what they were saying was these people were not, weren't invited. They weren't welcome in churches. They, they were the commoner class. They were the low class. They were the broken, you know, addicted kind of a class. And here, a man like Whitfield is out preaching the good news of the gospel to these folks, kind of like Jesus, you know. Jesus was loved by sinners. These would have been considered sinners. And yet here's Whitfield preaching to them with the same earnestness and passion and authority that he would be stand before standing before kings, you know. Yeah. I love what Sarah Edwards, of course, Jonathan Edwards' wife, she said he speaks from the heart all aglow with love and pours out a torrent of eloquence. Isn't that good? A torrent of eloquence, which is almost irresistible. Um, he would have been considered uh, as the first colonial American religious celebrity because everywhere Whitfield went, he was like a magnet. He attracted crowds of thousands. In fact, Benjamin Franklin did an experiment that uh, Eric Metaxas talks about in his book where he, uh, based upon science and math and all that, concluded that uh, Whitfield absolutely could speak to those kind of crowds and that people could hear them based upon his oratory skills and based upon just uh, the lay of the land, so to speak, where he was talking. So um, thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to see him. But let's, let's transition a little bit. What was his impact on America as far as from a taxes? Like, that's great that he's preaching and, you know, people are hearing um, uh, 
But the point that Metaxas brings out, and I'll quote him here, he said it would take three decades of his tireless preaching, but by the time he died in 1770, the colonies would be united in a way that was unthinkable when he arrived, and their people would have so changed their attitudes toward authority and toward the monarchy that they would have become a different kind of people than had ever existed in the world. Yeah. Let's talk about that. What was, what was the unifying effect that he had on the colonies, and why did they need to be unified maybe in the first place? Yeah, this is, well, first of all, <laughs> why, why does anyone need to be unified? You know, to accomplish anything great, like defeat the greatest empire known to man at that point, you know, well, not known to man, but in, at that time in history, the British Empire, you better be a unifying force. You want to accomplish anything, you need to have a unifying force. And imagine the uh, United States trying to declare you know, their independence from Britain while in the middle of their civil war. Not going to happen, right? Exactly. Not exactly. going to happen. So the unifying force from Whitfield is so important. But he unified the, the unifying force he has was not out of coercion or manipulation, but it was out of a sacred call. And yeah. this is where the faith element well, kicks so, in. So you got... The original 13 colonies, they all have different charters. They yep. all have different uh, denominations. I don't know all, but there was different denominational. Uh, you know, e e each colony was started uh, by a different religious background, all Christian, but but different sects of Christianity. And so, you know, you got the, you got the Anglicans, you got the Presbyterians, <coughs> you got the Catholics, you got the Baptists. Uh, you know, every, yeah. so the, and those are all divided. They all believe differently. Uh, but it was interesting about his message. Uh, that helped, uh, let's, let's talk about that, that helped kind of level everybody out and tear down the walls that divided us. And as you said, if the colonies hadn't come together under a common identity, uh, the United States of America, as Americans, if they had never uh, developed that identity, they would have never had a, the unifying force to take on the greatest superpower on planet Earth. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, we already mentioned this. He touched the hearts of, of the common person um, because he spoke to them as people who were valuable. Um, and he preached the gospel to them where they were at, out in the streets, in their neighborhood, in their towns, um, on their farms. Um, and his message was one of preaching of people equal in the sight of God. The beggar and the duchess alike were sinners in the need of a Savior. Now, now that's a powerful message. So just because you come out of wealth or you come out of um, some type of hierarchy, right, right, does not mean you're inherently better than the person who's coming out of poverty or brokenness or whatever. Every, everyone's a sinner, and everybody needs a Savior. That's, that is a leveling message. It's a humbling message, and it's why the establishment usually doesn't like people like Whitfield because he kind of upsets the apple cart. Well, if you're going to go against the king... What, what is your moral authority? What is your own authority to come against the king? Now, if you believe the king has been ordained by God, right, as a part of his, as part of his uh, hierarchy, yep. then it's going to be a lot harder to rebel against the king. But if you preach a message to say, hey, we are all created equal under God, and we're all under authority, yep. we're all accountable to the same authority, yep. all of a sudden that changes the whole thing. So that mentality has to be instilled in the colonies, uh, in the colonies for them to have even the initi initiative to say right. we're going to come against well, the Or king. the moral high ground. We always talk about that. You know, even in policy debates today, everybody <laughs> tries to claim the moral high ground because yeah. once you have the moral high ground, you have a justification for what it is that you're wanting to do. In this situation, you know, here, here you have uh, George Whitfield preaching new birth. The same thing he experienced, the same thing John Wesley experienced. He's saying you must be born again. Mm -hmm. 
well, I'm the queen. It doesn't matter. You must be born again. Right. Well, I'm the the priest. It doesn't matter. You must be born again. Everybody must be born again. We all stand on equal ground at the foot of the cross. That's a radical message because while people might have maybe believed that, it certainly wasn't preached or practiced. Um, and so to be able to tell the most wealthy person in town standing next to the most poor person in town, you're both going to hell if you don't experience an encounter with Jesus Christ in being born again. You, you know, that it's insulting in, to the prideful man, and it it's gives hope to the person with nothing. Um, and, and that was the message that he preached everywhere. So th this was even a leveling message because whether you preach it to the Anglicans or the Baptists or the Presbyterians, uh, whatever colony yeah. he was in, he preached the same message, you must be born again. Yeah. So even right there, that starts tearing down all the walls from all the colonies because his message was this is one thing we all have in common. We're sinners and we're in need of a Savior. That is a leveling message and at the same time a unifying message, uh, which, which is amazing. Um, let me, let me uh, read a couple <coughs> quotes from Metaxas. He said, they were all equal under God. They were all Americans. This was something new, an identity that was separate from one's ethnicity, or one's denomination. So you go to Europe, and what do you have in Europe? You have a, a, a patchwork, a quilt, based on ethnic identities. We're Germans, mm -hmm. we're, we're French, you know, we're English, uh, we're Welsh, whatever the situation, we're Irish. And then you come to America, and America is a melting pot. So we don't have those ethnic identities because we have people from all different identities. Well, in the Europe, it was the battle between the Protestants and the Catholics. Well, you come to America and you have all these Christian sects that are there. It's not the same way. So we're not all united because we're Anglicans or we're Catholics or we're Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists. You know, that's not pulling us together. So who are we over here and, and, and what are we? And what is the common banner or the common way of, of understanding our new uh, identity uh, in America, all these colonies coming together. So it wasn't based on ethnicity. It wasn't based on one's denomination. Um, it was based on the fact that we are all Americans because we are all Christians. Um, yeah. We're all we're all people who believe in the scriptures. We're all people operating from a Christian worldview. Something else Metaxas brings out. Let's touch on this and how it relates to authority. He says, the idea that everyone could have a direct relationship with God and that all were equal before God led to the idea that earthly authorities could be judged and should be judged. If God was the ultimate judge and the judge above all other judges, then surely each person could consider whether those in authority over him were exercising that authority in accordance with God's principles or not in accordance with God's principles, which is to say, in a way they could be considered tyrannous. Yeah. Um, unpackage all of that for, for a minute. How does that differ from maybe the mentality in Europe or in, in Great Britain before a lot of these folks came here as religious refugees? Yeah, I mean, again, like, this is... That phrase is commonplace to us today. Right. But back in the days, it's like there is a mandate from a king, and you listen to the king because he's the king or she's the queen, and, and they have And they got their right from God. From God. Their mandate is from God without question. There's so no when the king speaks, he speaks, he speaks the will of God. Throughout the history of mankind, most kings and queens or whatever, hierarchy, emperors, derive their authority from God, from some higher power. It's much easier to control people that way. As opposed to say, I derive my power from you know military might, which is probably the real case. 
But 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 theologically, uh, Whitfield introduced the idea that basically everyone's accountable. Everyone's accountable to the same source, and we have a direct challenge to the same source. So that all of a sudden, there that again another huge leveling ground. You know, the, even the whole phrase of like no taxation without representation. Now we, we all heard that phrase before. Right, right. Like that that idea is uh, is completely revolutionary, right? And biblical. And, and biblical. But but the idea that comes from the idea that hey I have a say in what is right and what is wrong because you know, I have a relationship with God. We take out, we take out all the mediating structures that existed. Like the average person couldn't directly relate to God. And in fact, we, we couldn't even read our Bibles right without being burned at the stake. We talked about this in previous podcasts because only the priest or somebody right. who was uh, authorized had the right and the ability to be able to tell us what God really said. Yeah. Whereas now all of a sudden we got people encouraged to read the Bible for themselves. We're called a priesthood, a royal priesthood. We're all royalty and we're all priests. What a crazy concept. That came from the Bible. Um, we, we, we have a mediator. His name is Jesus. And we, we can encounter Jesus and the Holy <laughs> Spirit and they can lead us to direct access with God the Father yeah. who wants a relationship with us. So these were radical ideas. But when you take that mentality in the ecclesiastical realm and then you begin to apply it in the governmental realm it's it's revolutionary because we're saying wait a minute you need to be under god's law just the same way i do and i can hear from god just the same way you can hear from god i can read the same way you can read i mean all of a sudden you have this incredible leveling effect that says wait a minute no you, you just you can't pass laws that trample my liberties just because you're the king, you know. Uh, so th these were radical, radical concepts that were rooted in the freedom that Whitfield was preaching, spiritual freedom. Elitism, we're better than you. You don't know what you're doing. Let us tell you how you should live your life. It's been the, 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 the basically operational uh, method for the history of the world. Okay, elites rise up to the top and they they look down on the peasants, right? Yep. And and, and Whitfield was kind of turning that upside down to say, hey, you know what? All of us are elites, and all of us at the same time are all peasants. <laughs> right, you know? right, right. We're all on equal ground. We're all equal before God. Yeah. And and th these were what he's doing. I, I like the phrase uh, of Metaxas here. He said the gospel of Christ was the most powerful sociological level leveler mm -hmm. in history. And although the message had existed for 17 centuries, it burst into full bloom only now at this crucial point in history under the watering can of Whitfield's preaching. So the seeds were there, but it was Whitfield's anointed preaching across the colonies that was like the Holy Spirit's watering can um, that watered the seed of all this. And he goes on to say Whitfield's preaching was a great social leveler throughout the colonies, but it was also a great uniter of the people in the colonies too. And he points out by the time Whitfield died in 1770, this is, this is crazy, an inconceivable 80% of the population of the American colonies had heard Whitfield preach at least once. That means they were at the meeting. They, they were at the gathering. They were in the field listening with their own ears because we're not talking about social media or television. We're talking about live crusades. 80% of the colonies had personally heard him at least one time. That is just the, the immersion of his message in the American colonies was unbelievable. And Piper brings out a fact, John Piper, in his article, that um, whereas Wesley, John and Charles Wesley, identified more 
with Britain. Um, it was Whitfield who really found his tribe here in America. He he identified with with Americans and with the American spirit um, and with the American side in the Revolution, whereas the Wesley sided with uh, with the King. Yeah, Whitfield picked the picked the winning team. Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go! <laughs> so we we got a few minutes left, and in the time that we have left, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, this man who uh, was called the spiritual founding father of the. United States, and we, we brought out a good a good point. You know, okay, that's great. Praise God for George Whitfield, but this isn't a podcast on history lessons. Talk a little bit about social cohesion and about where we are today, and uh, and what you know we're we're talking about a, a republic. If you can keep it, obviously to, to see the freedom of this nation <coughs> birth and the republic formed in the first place required an incredible amount of unity. We're seeing just the opposite today. Yeah, I mean, America is probably more divided today than it's ever been. And and you you and I were just talking about this. We're not just talking about division between different states. We're not okay. We're not even just talking about the different parties. Within the party, there's also division. Right. There's the division between states, and there's division among states. I mean, it's between the cities and the suburbs and the rural areas. Right. Talk yep. about big division. There are states that parts of it want to succeed to their own state because they don't, they're not represented by, you know, the, the, the urban centers, right? We have the red and the blue. We've got the flyover states. We've got the coastal state. You know, we, we tend to see uh, progressivism and, and liberalism uh, concentrating on both coasts. Uh, people like us in Indiana are kind of made fun of, you know, right. as being backwards or whatever. But the values uh, between, you know, between what holds us together as Americans right now, they're not that clearly not the same values. We do not have a united worldview for the most part. And it really makes our nation in a precarious spot because, uh, you know, a nation divided is not going to stand, as Jesus said, a kingdom divided. So um, we need we need a third great awakening. And we you've heard me preach about this. I think I even mentioned it, you know, Sunday. Um, if it, It's not like we hope this will happen. If we're going to keep our republic, mm. we must have a third great awakening. We must have the preaching of the gospel. We must have, have a new birth experience. We must have a common uh, shared worldview and a sense of common values or else... We will continue to be divided, hostile, and weak, weakened. And yeah. if it, we don't fall apart from within, we will certainly be uh, very much susceptible to our outside enemies. Yeah, um, I, I have a different, I have a unique perspective on some of this because I, I also see. I, I mentioned this before. If Britain wanted to win the war, what they should have done, what they could have done, is is. Um, they would send spies or would send propaganda in America, and then maybe they did do this to divide America during the Civil War, because uh, another Civil War, I'm sorry, the Revolutionary War, to divide America. And, and I wonder, I mean, you hear this from from talking heads, and I believe it is that you know, really, right now we're we're in our world today, it's not the D's and the R's. Really, there's this elite class, the globalistic class that right. that really wants power and. For America to, to be diminished, they really need to divide us. You know, I, I, I travel all over between Illinois and Indiana, and, and, you know, I see a lot of people will probably will vote completely differently. But when you interact with them on an interpersonal basis, there's not that big of a divide. You know, no one is saying to me, hey, you know what, uh, I want to go and, you know, uh, just murder people and steal people. In general, right. the Christian worldview that sustains our nation is still in generally in place. Yeah. I mean, are there extreme cases? Yes. 
And the more I see, I'm just like, man, there really is an agenda to make these t- topics so hot, so so divisive. And and you know, even though 80, 90 percent of the things I have in common with my neighbors, I think about some of my neighbors. You know, we would probably vote very differently. But 89 percent, 100 percent of our interaction is cordial. We're on the same page. We want family to thrive. We yep. love our kids. Yep. We want education to be well. We want to take care of the poor. Yeah, we want to make enough money to pay for pay bills for, and raise your family. And I would argue all those ideas are biblical ideas. This infrastructure that we've been we've been blessed with. We're not we're not having discussions like you know how can we be more corrupt so we can steal money for our neighbors. We're not having those discussions. In general, there's still even whether you're DR, there's still general discussions. And I, I just think, man, that is one of the enemy's ways to come and destroy our nation is to is to pinpoint that 0.1% and make that the biggest thing. I'm not saying those issues aren't important, yeah. but but having this perspective is important to us to understand. It's like, wow, we end up arguing because what happens is if we agree on 99% and we talk about those agreements, that last 1%, we can actually probably compromise and really come to some conclusion on those issues. And I'm on value-driven issues. I, I care about those deeply and I'm not compromising on those deeply. Yeah. But how do you change people's mind? By yeah. just fighting about all the time? Or do you say, hey, let's talk about our worldview and this, this 1% flows from the rest of our worldviews, which is biblical. Really biblical issues, you know. Well, and I think I think that's the point with Whitfield was when you preach the gospel, it is a supernatural uh, encounter that must take place. Like like for us, we could argue till we're blue in the face on some of the moral issues that people who don't share our faith disagree with us on, right? I mean, there's a host of those, and we're never going to argue them into our position. Um, it takes a change of heart. It takes a supernatural change in perspective and vision that the gospel brings about. And so through much hostility, he, he received attacks from the, the organized religious base, the church, mm-hmm. and he received attacks from people who uh, were the... Uh, the elitist crowd. Um, he received attacks from probably the common man who didn't want him coming into their town and t- telling this person who's hooked on alcohol and beating his wife uh, and full of profanity that he must be born again. But you know what? That was the leveling effect. He, Whitfield preached the gospel. He preached it to whoever, and he made it clear that if you're not born again, you'll never inherit the kingdom of God. And and that re- initially received pushback, but but he had God on his side. He, he our job is we share. Sunday is to preach the kingdom. God's job is to back up the kingdom with signs and wonders and miracles, which includes uh, new birth. Um, and so I feel like it's the church again. I mean, it, it was Wesley that was mightily used. It was Whitfield that was mightily used. And they impacted people like uh, William Wilberforce in the political arena who were powerfully used. So it really is a time for the church to be vocal and to stir up some things. And, you know, think about this. COVID was almost the religious establishment's um, kicking the church out, so to speak, of the pulpit because all the pulpits were closed and all the churches were closed. And uh, and it was uh, people who said, you know what? No, I'm going to continue to preach the gospel in the field, per se, or our doors are going to be open. Um, but we're going to continue to, to preach the gospel and trust the Lord. Those kind of churches experienced incredible growth. Um, I think it's similar today. God's looking for the church to go to where the people are. God's looking for the church to shine in the midst of, uh, of social crises. Um, you know, it says here, every American, American loved and admired Whitfield and saw him as their champion. Um, who's the champion, I guess, for the hearts and souls of American people today. Well, I, yeah. I think it's a good point because 
you say the church, but the traditional church kicked Whitfield out. Exactly. So, so I don't know Whitfield would consider himself whatever the traditional church. If you say you're part of traditional church, he probably wouldn't say that because he's getting kicked out. No, you're right. But he was acting like the body of Christ. Yeah. And I think this is the key here is, 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 is there are many traditional churches whatever institutional church that was that is not doing their job today it's not a unifying force it's not it's not preaching the gospel it's not urging people to become better citizens better contribution to their community right. to the point which benjamin franklin who again is right. kind of objective is saying wow i will i'll i'll, I'll vouch for this guy because yeah he actually made a donation to to whitfield's effort to help orphans because he said this guy's legit this guy's you know? like, he, right he's not a, sh a shyster right so whitfield was was bypassing the institutional church at this point and saying i'm going to act like the body the ecclesia the body of christ yep and i think that's a powerful point today because i mean like you said like the state of American church today is 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 nebulous. I mean, is, is there, how about there's a division even among that. Oh, I and mean, we have addressed some of those issues here, you know. And people are the normal people are confused. They're like, "Well, my church says this. Well, the other church says that." And they, right. it's confusing. It's really confusing, you know. The institutional church is so divided right now. Well, and, I, and I would say it this way too. When we've talked about this. It, it could truly be said of Whitfield. He kept the main thing. The main thing. You know, I, like there are denominational differences because there are denominational differences. There's differences in how we interpret different passages of the Bible, practices, beliefs, etc. But Whitfield preached, you must be born again. I mean, I can't think of a more central message than that. You have to have an encounter with the Lord. You have to repent of your sin. You have to give your life to Christ. Um, he kept the main thing the main thing, and he stayed on message for his entire life. Um, and, and he saw an incredible impact of people who responded to Jesus, you know. And again, if I could s say anything about what's been happening in my own experience, our own experience here, we're trying to keep the main thing the main thing. We're trying to, <coughs> to um, have a common message, a common tribe of who we are, right, that, that keeps us together, even though our church is made up of all different denominations, uh, and it's got to get out of the four walls of the church, and it's got to go to the nations and, of the world. And that was his message of, hey, it's not about the elitist. It's not about elitist. It's about you having a personal relationship, personal encounter. You're a personal minister. You're a minister of the gospel. Yeah. You know, there's a responsibility. There is a there's a sense of 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 honor to say, yeah, I have a personal relationship with God. I I don't need an intermediary. I myself is accountable to God. Well, there's also responsibility in that. That means right. you got to do something with right. that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's a double-edged sword. So a lot of parallels, and I guess we end with this, you know, uh, we're in, a, in desperate need of a champion, in desperate need of a unifier, in desperate need of a, a, a leveling and a humbling and a bringing Americans together, and really a recovering of our of our necessary identity as what does it mean to be an American in in, in the day and age in which we live. Um, if we lose that or we don't regain that, let's put it that way, I think we have lost it. If we don't regain that, there really is no hope for our republic. I, I, I will finish this one thing. I, I think everyone understands that there needs to be a unifying cause. And, and the, they're all kind of agenda, the left, the right, they, they are pushing some type of unifying cause. But yeah. I think... Uh, I was just reading uh, the, the book that made your world again. And and I think the conclusion that's drawn is that you can't not have a unifying cause without a transcendent cause. Yep. So all the secular humanist ways to have some right. kind of unifying cause, which is about ending poverty. Well, the, you need a religious faith-based understanding to to sustain that. Well, right. it, unifying cause is the equity or liberty or whatever. Well, those words have no meaning outside of context right. of a religion. Right. So we've got to find those. There's always going to be a holy war. 
a holy conflict. It's a conflict of religion. End of the day, I don't care how much you don't dismiss religion, it's only always going to be religious because you need a religious backing to truly unify this many people. You got to have a religious backing. So, so the more people shy away from religion, they're gonna, they, they can't, they can't, they got to come back to religion at some point. Even all the, the progressive worldviews right now, that's kind of taking over everything. At, at some point, there's, there's going to be, they need to explain the religious backing behind that. And that's where people fall short. They're like, oh, I can't really explain that. It's going to come through. And people are starting to see that. Yep. So we, we can't give up this message, unifying message of the gospel and, and not shy away because that's religious backing. Because everything needs a religious backing in the day. Amen. Well stated. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this. We're having a lot of fun with this book. Pick up a copy. You can follow along. And uh, until next Thursday, have an amazing week. Let's be a part of the solution. <laughs>